You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. century France, Jean-Baptiste Grenouille was born with a talent that made him unique among mankind. Stones, warm stones, water, frog. His phenomenal sense of smell was a gift that had been given to him and him alone. Master, can I come to work for you? My nose knows all the smells in the world. No man can call himself a perfumer unless he has proved his worth. The soul of beings is their scent. The intoxicating power of the girl's smell made it clear to him that he must learn how to preserve scent so that never again would he lose such sublime beauty. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. David Kittredge. How you doing? Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Josh Stewart. Your grandiose failure will also be a lesson in humility. This week, we're looking at Perfume, the story of a murderer. Released in 2006, the film was based on the 1985 book by Patrick Suskind. And to sum up the plot, I will use the immortal words of Mr. Kurt Cobain, Like most babies smell like butter... Jean-Baptiste Grenouille smelled like no other. He was born scentless and senseless. He was born a scentless apprentice. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers big time on this episode, so you have been warned. Josh, when was the first time you saw Perfume, and what did you think? I actually saw it, I want to say it hit video around 2007, and I saw it just about the time it hit the shelf, because uh, I remembered hearing about them trying to make this into a film for a very long time. And I'd heard about the book, but I'd never read it up to that point. Uh, just that it was supposed to be unfilmable. And then I saw it was the director of run low, the run. And I was following it all the way till it barely got released. And as soon as it hit video, I, I probably got it the week it came out and I was just blown away. And David, I think this was a first time watch for you. It was, I was familiar with the director's work from run, little run. And, uh, I think he did the movie three. Is that right? I'm misremembering. Yeah. Uh, cloud Atlas, uh, which he did with the Wachowskis. And 
you know, I, I really think he's he's an interesting stylist. Oh, and his little bit in uh, Paris Jatem, which I really liked. I thought that was one of the better pieces in that movie. Uh, but no, I had not seen this film. I'd heard all about it. The book, of course, is an enormous success. Uh, it was, you know, I, I actually have the book in the other room, but I have not read the book. Uh, so I'm coming at this reasonably fresh and it was a very interesting experience. I thought it was, you know, I, I, I can't say that I'm a huge fan. Um, but it was a really interesting film to discuss and I, I can't wait to hear what you guys think of it and, and maybe, uh, I don't know, be, be devil's advocate for some of it because I think some of it really works and I think some of it really doesn't. I totally backed into this movie. I don't remember when it came out theatrically. When I watched it, I don't know if I knew of the connection to the perfume book or not, because I was a huge Nirvana fan. And when I heard that song, Scentless Apprentice, I was plugged into the band and everything. I was like, oh, yeah, this is inspired by this book. And I was like, all right. So it took me years to track down a copy for whatever reason. I couldn't find it. And this was 1994, I think, when I first heard Scentless Apprentice. And then... I also was a fan of Run Lola Run, but I didn't remember this coming out at the theater at all. And then finally checked it out probably on VHS, which, uh, probably does this movie a great deal of disservice, but it has stuck with me all these years. And it's one of those where, you know, it made such an impression that I wanted to talk about it on the show and wanted to hear what you guys had to say about it and hopefully spread the word to other people who might not have even heard of this film because it's got this really great cast. It's got a really nice look to it, and it deals with something that you don't necessarily see in too many uh, films, which is a serial murderer. No, I'm kidding, which is the power of scent. So mixing serial murder with the power of scent is an interesting thing to do on uh, in a visual medium. Well, yeah, it's ephemeral. So, I mean, unlike, you know, music or you know, almost anything that, that, that you can sense, uh, except maybe touch. How do you kind of indicate scent in a film? Uh, you know, other than doing the John Waters scent, you know, smell a rama root. You see, I had to bring up polyester somehow in this. It, it had to happen. You see, they should have just given out cards and the movie would have been like, you know, it outgrossed Avatar, like the little scratch and sniff. Scratch number eight for the orgy smell. Odorama will enable you, the viewer, to actually smell right from your movie seat some of life's most fragrant odors. This is the nose, the most prominent part of the human face. It bears the nostrils and covers the nasal passages. Through this nose comes some of life's most rewarding sensations and we plan to share with you. You will experience some odors that may shock you. But the producers of this film believe that today's audiences are mature enough to accept the fact that some things in life just plain stink. I saw the movie before I read the book, and reading the book actually really helped to recontextualize a lot of what the movie did. They almost feel like companions to each other rather than just a direct adaptation, and I thought it was super interesting sort of experiencing them back to back. It's an interesting adaptation, and I read the book after, or actually I listened to the audiobook. I've only ever experienced this as an audiobook, and I've listened to it a couple times now. And it's very surprising 
what they leave in, what they take out. But I would say it's a pretty faithful adaptation as much as it can be going from print or from audio to uh, a visual medium. And I don't think that they necessarily capture Grenouille very well because Grenouille is described in the book as being well, I mean, the name means frog, and he's almost more frog-like in the book as far as he survives, like, anthrax. He has scars on his face. He's, he has a club foot. Uh, he's shorter than the average person. He's just this very unpleasant-looking and unpleasant because he has no odor to him uh, kind of thing. And that's one of the things, like, like I quoted up front, the whole idea of he is almost killed as an infant because he doesn't have any sort of odor to him and people immediately sense that something's wrong with him but they don't know exactly what that is yeah he's just supposed to be i guess unnerving and he's he's described as as unremarkable more than anything i think in the book well then they they picked this nice handsome young boy yeah i mean it's interesting that you say this because i kind of i I have to say i kind of suspected that had I read the book before I saw the movie, I would have liked the movie a lot more. Because I felt like just overall coming away from this, and these are just overall kind of perceptions by somebody who just literally just dropped into the movie, like vaguely knowing what it was about, knowing who the director was, knowing the stars, but not, you know, knowing all the plot or how it ends or anything like that. And I got the sense that, okay, this is a movie about a guy and he is the main character. Gronwy is the main character. I mean, everything happens around him. And you kind of have to be with him. And it's, and it's very difficult. In, I mean, certainly, Mike, you've, you've seen enough movies. Like, it's d- difficult to do a movie about a guy who does terrible things and have the audience care. You have to, you have to go to interesting lengths. Um, and only, you know, there, there are certain movies that do it well. Like, you know, there will be blood is, I think, the, the king of that at this point. Like, uh, just, you know, for a recent movie. But I never cared about him in the movie. I mean, first of all, they cast Hottie Ben Wishaw, who's adorable, and he does—he does not look off-putting at all. I'm sorry. I, you know, I know I'm the I'm the I'm the voice of you know gay lust here, but at the same time, you know, he's just adorable. Um, you know, he he comes and I think this is his first big role, right? I mean, he got everything after. He had been in a few other things, but yeah, this this isn't something like um, Paddington or uh, Mary Poppins or something, yeah, or or even Cloud Atlas or or that lovely uh, little gay movie he did, which name I'm not remembering. Why am I not remembering? Where his his partner dies and he has to uh, deal with his partner's mom, who's of I think Chinese descent, uh, in London. Damn, that was a, such a good movie too, and I cannot remember the name, but he's fantastic. And he's also an out gay actor, which is a reasonable rarity still, unfortunately. Um, so I can, you know, pepper my, you know, gay lust mentions with actual reality. He is actually gay. Um, but you know, he's, for someone who's gonna be the frog with a club foot who's unsettling, he just kind of looks angelic. He's like really, boyish and cute and even when he's meant to be menacing he's just kind of you just want to kind of pat him on the head like oh well i think that's definitely one way to get us to sympathize with this character a little bit more is that he is somewhat handsome i mean he's got the a couple scars like one on his shoulder the one over his eyebrow you know but big deal it's ben wishaw he looks he looks so cute i mean put pruitt taylor vince in this and it would be a whole different story 
You know, that might have worked better, actually. I mean, and I think Ben Warshaw did a really good job in this role, so don't get me wrong. But it's like maybe if it had been someone a little more, you know, like non-pretty. Uh, I mean, even his scars are kind of pretty movie star scars. They're, the, they're like the scars you put on like your hero. It's a tough movie. I, I would imagine, not having read the book, it would be a tough movie to adapt because you are talking about something ephemeral. You are talking about something that the audience cannot necessarily experience directly. So, you know, and, and in addition, you're, 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 you're asking the audience to believe that these things that they're not experiencing directly can literally quasi drug people into insanity. Like, like the, just the sensual nature of whatever the scent is, you know, by the end leads people to basically temporarily completely lose their minds. It's a lot. It's a big ask. And, and for whatever it's worth, I mean, my, my, my issues with the film are not about that. I think actually toward the end, I thought the film got better. The more outrageous it got and the more outrageous the last, you know, 20 or 30 minutes are. I think that kind of worked for the fable nature of it. The, the issues that I would have with it kind of were in the first, you know, half or first two thirds. It's very much like a superhero movie in a lot of ways that his power of scent is his superpower. And we get to see his origin story. We get to see, I think, the first real moment, the flash of when we see his superpower, quote unquote, is when he is there with his, uh, the, the people that he is in this uh, not boarding house, but like orphanage with. And at one point, a kid throws an apple at him and he can smell the apple before it gets anywhere near his head and he ducks out of the way as the apple zings by him. And I think if we had a little bit more of that kind of stuff or like near the end of the film, when uh, one of his victims is riding off uh, to another city, he smells the air and can travel miles and miles and miles to pinpoint this one particular scent. And we get some of that at the beginning, but mostly it's him being greedy for smells and trying to catalog smells and just trying to smell everything and experience the world. He doesn't even know words for things, but he can figure out these things through the, the smells in them, through the odors. And again, I think Tickford does a good job of taking us there, but I think, yeah, had we had a little bit more of that, that idea of him being this anonymous person and not having a scent and that gives him almost this cloak of invisibility towards the end of the story, at least in the book, where he can travel throughout so many different places and mask himself because he has no scent. He can kill all of these women, uh, spoilers, that uh, he needs for this special perfume in the last third of the film um, because nobody even notices that he's there because he is scentless and he is just this invisible presence. It kind of reminds me of the second, I think it's the second or third Dune book when Paul Atreides ends up being blinded in that and he can see everything because he has the power of the spice. He has the power of prognostication and he can see what's going to happen in the immediate future. So he takes that power and can put pictures in his mind as far as what will happen so he can maneuver his way throughout the world that way. And Grenouille is very similar uh, and we don't necessarily, again, get this in the 
the in the film too much where he doesn't need any of his other senses because his sense of smell is so powerful he can make it through a completely dark room because he can smell everything around him it's almost like daredevil when you know somebody knocks something and he gets the reverberations from the sound that kind of ultra sonar but for him it's this ultra smell ability yeah he can almost echolocate on a scent but it's interesting because like scents are not i mean it, as far as at least human experience scents are very low on our list of of things we react to in an immediate way like that i mean they're they're there and and certainly if we, we smell something fetid or, or gross th- that's going to be a, of alarm but i mean it's a lot to ask a filmmaker to be like, okay, so this dude is going to walk through some crowds, but he wants to be anonymous, and it's because he doesn't smell like anything. It's like, if I'm a filmmaker, like, okay, what what the hell do I do with that? It's like, all right, well, here, wear some black, and uh, we'll have some voiceover. I mean, I think that comes through in his first murder, when he can sneak up on this woman, and he's just right behind her for so much of it, and he throws off nothing he is just a blank but yeah i know what you mean as far as how are you going to represent that on film the thing that the book and maybe the movie makes you think about a little bit more is you know you said like people don't react to sense that way just like bad sense or really good sense but i think that it tries to push that a little bit and say no we react to things all the time we just don't realize that we're even doing that don't you hate that those uncomfortable silences that occur when two alluring strangers are thrown together by fate and their pheromones do all the talking. Pheromones? You know, those imperceptible scents that animals give off to attract a mate. Any movie or fiction or anything, there's a buy-in there. You know, you have to buy the concept. You have to buy, okay, this, these are the rules, this is the world. And, and the buy here is... This is basically a superhero with amazing powers of smell. The other buy on top of that is, and he's greedy for smells and he kind of views women as not people, but scent producing animals or something. I like, like, cause nobody, there's, I mean, at least, and I'm speaking of the film, I, I don't know the book, but I don't re- really think there's any woman in this film that has any agency whatsoever. They're just there to be killed or harnessed or made into perfume. And that's not necessarily a ding on the film itself. Certainly you can go down, you know, film history and, and, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, I think is, I'd say the best film ever made and it has no women in any speaking roles whatsoever. So it's not, it's not like this is, you know, by itself something that would take it off of, uh, you know, any kind of quality. But I will say that I, I'm not sure watching it if the filmmakers really were cognizant of that you know it was it's i got the sense that it was just like okay he's a serial killer it's cool you know he's doing these things he wants to like possess sense he doesn't want them to go away you know it's that male possession thing but i i sent there there was there didn't seem to be any analysis or actual like critique of that motivation except that it's oh it's bad or it's creepy or whatever and that that was one of my main issues with this film. I, I think, and I'm, I'm again, I'm really not a PC warrior or whatever. I, I'm not looking for things to be offended by, but to have a movie about a serial killer who kills women and have absolutely no women in it, have any character of, to speak of, really, that's tough. That's a tough thing to defend. 
See, I would actually look at that as almost an extension of the fact that it's it's really from Grenouille's point of view, uh, particularly more so in the book than than the movie for sure. But I feel like he looks at, at human beings in general as a nuisance, uh, and the women he just happens to latch onto because they have that one thing he wants, and he doesn't see anybody as any kind of being on the same level as him. I, I don't recall if they do it in the book or not, but in or in the movie or not, but in the book, he essentially views himself as sort of a god at points. Like these mm. people are nothing to him. If if they're they're sticking closer to his point of view, it does make sense. But yes, what you're saying absolutely also lines up with yeah, I mean, there are almost no good characters, like no no pure good characters in the story as it is. Well, was Alan, Alan Rickman is about as close as it gets. Yeah, Alan Rickman is, I mean, and, and even he has that moment at the end, but like Alan Rickman is the one character that kind of comes in and is like, okay, I'm smart and I'm actually saying the right things and I actually understand what's going on, you know, and I'm trying to do the right thing. Um, but I mean, and I think what you're saying about point of view is very valid and, 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 and correct, except that the movie is not really all from his perspective. In fact, in the second half, it's, it's only about half from his perspective. The other half is Alan Rickman and his daughter trying to get away or whatever else. I mean, it's, it's not told through his eyes in the second half exclusively, at least. I mean, you're, he's still there. He's a character. Oh yeah. Once the murders ramp up, he definitely becomes more of like a looming figure in the background. He, he, he very much becomes more of a, a ghost to the events that are in the forefront at that point. Right. Exactly. And, and that, that would have been, I think the appropriate time to introduce an actual female character <laughs> or, or any, like, like, I mean, I, the daughter kind of has a couple of lines, right? I mean, she has the, the, you know, running around the, the maze thing. It's, it's, it's tough because again, this movie, I think has a lot of good things in it. And I think it, it does a lot of difficult things well, but I question some of the fundamental choices that they made. And now that you're telling me, I mean, you know, cause I did, I did some research before, but it's like, you know, if Grand Wee in the book is is a little more unsettling and a little more weird and a little more kind of on the fringes, that makes a lot more sense. That's not how they made the movie, though. Yeah, you don't get a voiceover from him. You get John Hurt as the narrator, but you don't necessarily get too much of an insight on Grand Wee until the very end when he decides to basically kill himself because he will always be an outsider. He will never be loved. He can never experience that. But is that what he wanted? Did he want to be loved? I mean, that was the whole issue that I had was, a, what does he exactly want? Okay, he wants to be able to replicate and 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 preserve these these scents, these things that move him. Okay, why? Like, and like because he never had anything. And at the end, now that he's done it, it's like now it's not worth it anymore. And I I know I just had the sense the book had to have gone into this more um and 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 been more explicable but the, it doesn't feel like the movie was interested and that's that i would criticize about the movie i did not feel like the movie was interested in actually showing us or getting us under the skin of this guy even though he's our main character yeah i suppose it's he kind of reminds me of like a hannibal lecter where you don't necessarily know exactly what's motivating hannibal but a lot of times it's more like what is propriety what does you know hannibal wants to enjoy the arts and his drawings and do all this kind of stuff and if somebody makes him mad or is uh is some is rude in some way to him then he will eat them and but yeah i i agree that there's not a whole lot of motivation i like that you see throughout the film that 
Grumwee, once he starts to learn about sense, and then when he learns that you can start to capture sense through through the Dustin Hoffman character, and then he wants to know more, how can I capture this other scent? He gets so upset when he's trying to capture the sense of like glass or metal, and then he has to learn about enfleurage. So it's this constant stepping up of things. But yeah, to make that next leap to now I'm going to take the sense from these women, even though we had that one character introduced earlier that he wanted to capture her scent for all time. Um, yeah, that is a little bit of a, of a stretch to go there. And it's interesting that you bring up uh, Hannibal Lecter because the one movie that kept coming up in my mind when I watched this the first time afterwards when I was thinking of it was Michael Mann's Manhunter in 1986. Just because, okay, this is another movie. I mean, in that movie, the serial killer liked to kill whole families. So it's not just about women. But I was, this is a very, I mean, it's Michael Mann. It's very, very, very male centric. Every, almost everybody in the movie is a guy, except there are two female supporting characters and both of them have agency. One is Will Graham's wife played by Kim Greist. And one is the deaf lady who, yes, she's blind, played by Joan Allen, um, who uh, does not have really great sense of people and befriends and kind of falls into a relationship with uh, Francis Dollarhide, who turns out to be Buffalo Bill, our serial killer. That's not really a spoiler because it's presented in the movie pretty matter-of-factly. But, you know, both of these women – in this very male centric, this, this dude wants to like possess these people in a very similar way that Granoui kind of wanted to possess these women. Um, you know, a different psychology because which, which has gone into in Manhunter very cleverly and how they catch him, which I won't go into because it's a really great movie and you should see it. Um, if you haven't. That's the same atrocious aftershave you wore in court three years ago. Yeah, I keep getting it for Christmas. <sighs> you came out to look at me. You got the old scent back again, didn't you? Do you know how you caught me, Will? Goodbye, Dr. Ledger. You can leave messages for me at the number Do you know how you caught me? The reason you caught me, Will, is you're just a lamp. You want the scent? Smell yourself. There is a sense that those women are people and not just, you know, things for the movie to kind of hang as bait for the killer. It's, it's odd. It's, 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 I, I really, I'm very hesitant to hit this too hard with this movie because I really don't like those critiques of movies where like, oh, well, you know, you know, I don't know. You, you get into that kind of identity politics and, and all art gets very scared. You know, you just look at what happened with Green Book this, this year. Um, I have friends who loved Green Book. I have friends who really did not like Green Book. I think that the, the arguments against Green Book uh, as being a white savior narrative are completely valid. Uh, the question is, does that make it a not good movie? Do we need more movies with white people talking about how black people dealt with racism? These are all like questions. And we're in this weird pocket of like societal change right now where all this stuff is coming up and, you know, me too and all that stuff. So I'm hesitant to take this, you know, take this kind of a critique to this movie, but it, it really, really, really did hit me that way because it just, it felt really oppressively men only. I do think it is interesting to note that, uh, cause I, I spent about 17 hours this week listening to Mike's un, like complete interview with the screenwriter, Andrew Birkin. Uh, he did say that, that particularly when they were trying to figure out how to focus the story, especially in that, that last act, 
they went through all these different drafts where, you know, where Rishi was kind of more of a, a fleshed out character and his daughter was more fleshed out and they went through over and over again. And in the end, the best one they had was what they went with where the daughter was more of a figurehead. So I'm mm-hmm. curious to see what those other drafts looked like and how they might have played compared to this, because I can't imagine you're the only one that sees it this way. Probably not. I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe this was, what was it? 2006. It was made in maybe, maybe, maybe this is better suited for a long form television thing. I mean, and I guess we can get into the German TV movie in a bit, uh, which is also interesting and, and I think problematic in certain ways as well. Um, though also beautifully shot, but maybe this is just a story that was just too big for a movie. Maybe they should have just done like the, like, you know, he like open the movie with him killing the first woman and, and just going from there and just like getting, you know, cutting it to the bone. You had mentioned, Josh, that this was considered unfilmable for a lot of years. And, uh, there were so many directors that were attached to this. This is, it's one of these like, wow, what a crazy list. But when it comes to it, I think Tom Tickford is probably the best person for it. And going back and reading the book again and, you know, knowing, rewatching Run Lola Run after all these years again, I mean, it has moments. The book has moments from 1985, has moments that are echoed in Run Lola Run. The whole idea of when Lola interacts with people or runs past people that we get those photo montages of what happens after that and how their lives might change just because of however the wind is blowing that particular day or whatever, we get those types of little like runaway segments in perfume in both the book and the movie of what happened after Gren Wee left the life of that particular person. And none of them have a pleasant life afterwards. No, yeah. And Tickford, yeah, he definitely figured out kind of the almost like there's a formula for, for telling you somebody letting you feel somebody's, almost entire life story in a matter of moments. And that's very hard to pin down. And I love that everybody that Grenwy touches just turns to shit. I mean, just everybody gets screwed over in some way. And again, nobody's a hero in this movie. So seeing the woman that ran, that was beating the kids at the orphanage, or I mean, the, the Dustin Hoffman character, he is Baldini. He is wonderful. And he is so problematic at the same time because Baldini is a fraud. He, lived his life as a fraud and he continues to live his life as a fraud. He basically sold his first formula was one that his dad had, uh, had done. His first perfume was based on something like that. He continues to steal other people's work and pass it off as, as his own. And then once Grenwee enters his life, he does the exact same thing, becomes this huge, wonderful success and then dies just so tragically with his entire shop just disintegrating off of that bridge. Wait, but in the movie, was, was it indicated that he, because I, mean, I thought that the, I just rewatched this like, uh, like yesterday. Um, I thought that the VO before Baldini, when Baldini was, um, uh, uh announced, like uh, introduced, said that he had had done brilliant work in the past that he had done like brilliant sense and but he was now out of touch that he was so that would indicate to me this wasn't a fraud he's just a has been and and out of touch most of his brilliance it it that is another one of those like it was in the book kind of thing and i'm sorry to no no it's fine it's uh, you know this I'm glad to be, I'm glad to be the, the, the ignorant of the book <laughs> one year, bringing it back to the movie. 
you pretty much think that he was brilliant at some point. And then the uh, narrator of the book says, oh, yeah, his first uh, major success was based on something his father did. And then, you know, he might have gotten lucky, but he really had no real uh, skill of his own. And then you see him with the Amor and Psyche perfume just trying to replicate that because he wants to uh, make that in bigger quantities. And uh, those uh, goat skins that Grenouille is bringing to him, he's going to cover those in perfume and sell those. And he pretty much is planning in the book that that's going to be his last thing. He's going to put this perfume on these goat skins and retire. And then Grenwy gives him this new life injection and he just becomes fabulously rich and super popular based upon Grenwy's work and takes all the credit for everything. It's like one last job, like every, every heist movie ever made. Like, no, just it's, what, what did Robert De Niro saying? He'd like, it's worth the stretch. You're on a real Michael Mann kick tonight. I, I, love I don't it. know why it's like, it's yeah, just, I don't know. It's on my mind. I don't know why. The other thing I like about having Tikfer as uh, our director is that we have this whole weird fetishization of redheaded women in this movie, which, again, is right off of our main character in Run, Lola, Run as well. I mean, her red hair seemed very um, almost supernatural, let's say. <laughs> but, you know, having these these at least two redheads in this movie as being this sign of something so um, otherworldly, it works very well. It, you know, it's like we could go you know, go back to The Sixth Sense or any other movie that uses red as like the big asterisk point to focus our attention. I was uh, talking to a redheaded friend of mine. I was just like, do people treat you differently ever? Or is there like you're some sort of like a weird beast or something? And it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that all the time. So I'm like, OK, kind of fits in with this movie as well. None of, none of us are redheads. So like we can we can say these things. If I had any hair, I'd be happy about it. Tune in later to this podcast. Mike will talk to some redheads. What's your experience? Has some has a serial killer tried to kill you today? And it's also Baldini that gives us this whole 13th scent. And I don't think that that is part of the book, Josh. Am I right about that? That's definitely not part of the book. Last week, I finished the book and then I immediately watched the movie. And yeah, it's like I said, because it almost felt like they were just sort of filling in blanks for each other. It, it actually worked best for me now having them back to back because yeah, that, that whole 13th element situation that was, I mean, that was completely new. You actually see, is it a uh, policier, his, his, uh, rival who's sent, he steals you, you actually see him earlier on in the film, you know, it, it, it goes, I feel like it tries to go a little bit deeper into the actual creation of the scent that I felt that the book really cared to do. I think the book was more interested in the idea than, than the actual science behind it. Now, pay careful attention to what I tell you. Just like a musical chord, a perfume chord contains four essences or notes carefully selected for their harmonic affinity. Each perfume contains three chords, the head, the heart, and the bass, necessitating 12 notes in all. The head chord contains the first impression lasting a few minutes before giving way to the heart chord, the theme of the perfume lasting several hours. Finally, the bass chord, the trail of the perfume lasting several days. <sighs> Mind you, the ancient Egyptians believed that one can only create a truly original perfume by adding an extra note. 
one final essence that will ring out and dominate the others. Legend has it that an amphora was once found in a pharaoh's tomb, and when it was opened, a perfume was released. After all those thousands of years, a perfume of such subtle beauty and yet such power that for one single moment, every person on earth believed they were in paradise. Twelve essences could be identified, but the thirteenth, the vital one, could never be determined. Why not? Why not? What do you mean, why not? Because it's a legend, numbskull. What's a legend? Yeah, I don't even think we get a, a a book montage of all of the women that he ends up murdering. I mean, we get the montage in the movie, but it's pretty pieced together as far as him killing all those different women. It wasn't as focused on that. I don't think that was the concern. The concern was just the idea that he was working towards something, whereas the movie was more interested in the activity itself. And I like this idea, too, of describing perfume as music and talking about the notes and the way that the different chords come together. And uh, I think that's actually – a lot of this stuff is based on real ideas behind perfumery. And I had no idea that there was an actual city of grass and that it is this perfume hub of France. It is, I mean, is it, is it still – I know it was. Uh, is it is it continued? Does it – Still like that? When I looked it up on Wikipedia, it was just like, known for their perfumes. I was like, oh, okay, this is a real thing. What? Actually, I want to interject because you just reminded me of something on my notes that I wanted to talk about, Like, which is, uh, you know, and again, if, if none of this makes any sense, please, feel free to just edit it out um, of this whole thing. But one of the things I was thinking of, like, it, it, perfume, this is really – one of those narratives about art that's kind of it's 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 that it's that it's it's based on this artist cliche um which is not to say that it's not sometimes accurate but let me tell you what it is um there perfume is an art the artist is consumed by his art and loses his mind and loses his morals along the way to make the art it, it's this narrative that artists in order to really be passionate and create their their art you know some have to lose themselves in it or lose their minds or, you know, kill people or be depressed or, you know, self-destruct or, you know, and you've seen this throughout narrative history, like not, not just in film and books and, and countless works. And I, I find the entire concept of that a bit problematic, which is not to suggest that it, it doesn't sometimes exist. I'm just saying that it's a, this is an interesting twist on it in the sense that, you know, I've seen, you know, movies and read books about people losing their minds because they're so into music, uh, or writing or whatever. But this is like, oh, you're, you're, you're obsessed with smell. I guess that's, you know, <laughs> the next one, you know? Um, but it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting way to look at it because this is basically saying like, okay, this is art. This is an artist. He's reprehensible and horrible and he's a serial killer, but he's an artist. And he's trying to create a work of art. Now, this work of art actually is meant to do something. It's not just like to exist. It actually does stuff to you. So in a way, it's almost like he's a drug dealer in a, in a kind of a bizarre way, at least toward the end of this film that, you know, spoiler alert, 
you know, one of the, one of the best things about seeing this and not knowing was the scene toward the end where everyone loses their minds because I literally did not see it coming. I thought, okay, so, you know, whatever. And it's like, but when that happened, I'm like, oh, there's more on this movie's mind than just some kind of moralistic, you know, it's bad to kill people kind of story. You know, it's like, there's, there's more, there's more going on here. And then I was left with, okay, so what we're talking about is an artist creating art. We're talking about a man who's so obsessed with this sensual experience and replicating it or controlling it or owning it. You know, all morals and empathy go out the window and he becomes a monster. But, you know, and in a lot of these stories are, you know, the question is asked, are we left? Is the art or the experience or whatever we're left with from this artist worth all the horrible things they did to get there? I don't know. It falls in line with a lot of those stories. I'm sure you guys have seen, you know, stuff like that as well. Yeah, the difference is that in a lot of those, it's sort of like a descent, you know, into immorality and madness. But Grenouille is a character who never had morals in the first place, and he just gave in deeper as time went along. But I think the big takeaway is that, you know, this this story spends 95% of itself being relatively, you know, realistic and believable. And then when it takes that hard right turn at the end, you're like, oh, he might be a psychotic piece of shit, but he was right the whole time. <laughs> he was, he was yeah. working towards something and he, he did it. Well, in a way, Daniel Plainview was right. I mean, you know, it's like you, you come to the end of there will be blood. I'm like, that is the logical ending. You were right. Except how terrible is that? <laughs> how awful is that, that you were right? And there you are in a bowling alley with Paul Dano. You know, talking about anti-heroes. Uh, but I know there are other movies that, like, you know, people like, get obsessed with something. They do it. And then at the end, it's just like, okay, you did it and all this horrible shit happened. But was it worth it? You know, you referenced polyester earlier. And that takes me back a little further to John Waters' Female Trouble, which is about the beauty and art of crime itself. Y- y- that That's very much, you know, h- how far do you go? Is it is it really worth it? Or, or you take it to the ludicrous extreme and Darren Aronofsky's mother, which, you know, has, has its defenders. I am not one of them, but you know, I, 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 I applaud the movie for its gutsiness. I don't think it worked. I think technically it's really amazing, especially in the last third, but this is another movie about the artist as an asshole, you know, and, and he's either God or the man or whatever you want to call him, but he's a jerk. He's horrible. And was it worth it? Oh, so you're talking about Picasso. Yeah, or, or, yeah, there's, oh my God, there's so many stories. Like, or, you know, um, I haven't seen Lust for Life in a very long time, but, you know, I don't remember that being a very happy story either. You know, it's like, there, there's, I mean, even, you know, Amadeus, what, he's like a, I mean, he's not really obsessed. He's more like a goofball, but Salieri was certainly obsessed. I mean, he doesn't end up very happy, but is the music worth it? I could see this being a good double feature with something like Roger Corman's Bucket of Blood. Or all that jazz. That's, that's a perfect, well, he's not, I mean, is he an artist? He's, I guess, yeah, he's an artist. He's a director. He doesn't compose the stuff, but he, well, he choreographs and he ends up, you know, dead with Jessica Lang. And it's almost, I know that Fosse was a director, but as far as his choreography and the dance routines and the things that he did on stage, it's almost that same kind of ephemeral thing. You know, I talked to actors who were in stage plays and it's like, I'm sorry if I can't see it with my eyes. It's hard to believe that it existed 
that, you know, what your performance was like, any of those kind of things. And it's like scent in the way that it is carried off by the wind. You know, it's not captured by anything. So it's very difficult for me to grasp what that is. And I like that Grenouille at the end, even though he was this terrible murderer and, you know, had all of these uh, crimes under his belt, he eventually gets away with it that someone else, his mentor, uh, well, who was not a very good mentor, um, ends up paying for the crimes and that he just like scent is taken off by the wind you know when he is consumed by all of these people on the streets of paris back in the filth where he began his life yeah when there's nothing left maybe you've never existed in the first place but it's funny because like film itself and cinema itself is ephemeral it's a repeatable thing it's infinitely repeatable because it's static it's it's like you know the, the film experience it's like you have this image it's either on celluloid or on, you know, in pixels. It's this resolution. The sound goes here and you, and it, and it's temporal. You play it from beginning to end and it's repeatable. But, but the experience of it is, is something that, that is an ephemeral temporal experience. And in a way, scent is similar in a way, you know, music, uh, certainly has the kind of a ambiguous kind of vibe to it that is non-narrative, non-linear, not non-linear, not, um, non-literal. Uh, you know, that, that scent does, but cinema is yet another art form that, that it's like, it's not a, a sculpture. It's not a book. Even it's, it's something that you have to sit down and experience. You, you press play or you run the projector and there it is. And you sit and watch it. You experience it, um, you know, on its own temporal terms. Right. So there's something to be said about a sculpture that is set up in an art museum versus a sculpture that's set up in, say, a junkyard. You know, and it's just, it's interesting how the, I can experience cinema one way on a Monday and a completely different way on a Tuesday because I'm a different person. I'm going through different emotional states. And, you know, I might see The Big Lebowski the first time and hate it and then see it the second time and absolutely love it. Which is one of the magical things about cinema. I, I, one of the, one of the best things is when you see a movie and you don't like it, but you feel like you need to see it again. And then you see it again and you have a completely different experience. That's, I mean, honestly, that's only happened to me maybe a, a couple of dozen times in my life where it was just singularly different the second time. And, and, and then you just appreciate it more and more. I mean, I, one of the biggest ones for me was Eyes Wide Shut. I remember seeing that because I was the hugest Kubrick fan. I remember seeing that in the movie theater, opening day, Friday, like 10 a.m. or something in New York at 3rd Avenue and and 11th Street uh, at that – it was a Lowe's then. And it was one of the tiny theaters up top in like the fifth floor or whatever. And I left that theater thinking like, oh, really? That he he went on on that? And it wasn't until like HBO started running it like – compulsively or Cinemax or one of them. And I would always catch it like 30 minutes in and then I would have to watch it all the way to the end. And I've, I've rarely had a movie like that just grabs me and just like, so whenever it's on and I flip to it, like I have to make myself not watch it to the end. So I knew there was something to it that I wasn't grasping. Um, and it took me like several times seeing that movie to really understand kind of what he was going for and, and, kind of the underlying brilliance of that film. I don't know. Maybe that'll happen with me with perfume. I have no idea. Yeah, it's possible for me. That one was actually uh, of all movies, Blade Runner, where the first time I saw it, nothing, nothing really sunk in. I was like, that was pretty, but I'm not really sure what was going on. And then I ended up buying it and I just kept watching it anyway. <laughs> yeah. And over time, over time, it just started to, to click, 
you, you realize there's more going on under the hood, even even if you have to formulate some of it for yourself. At least you're getting a reaction. Yeah, I remember I remember seeing that movie for the first time with a Criterion CAV Laserdisc. And it was, of course, just the, the, the U.S. release. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was the international release because they had those like what, like two seconds of of gore in it that or what what yeah daryl hannah flails around a bit more i think i don't remember what 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 the difference was really but it was not much but it wasn't until it really wasn't until the 90s when i saw that the non-vo version with the ridley scott version with a different ending i was like oh okay i mean i i appreciate it before then but it's like okay this is this is this makes more sense now this feels better so this movie really for me it's like a couple major set pieces and the the set piece with Baldini is one of those. That's one of those things that I really remember a lot when I think about this film and then the murder montage that happens later on, because after he leaves Paris and ends up going to Grasse, there's a, there's a, a mid middle part, a part two of the book that, takes a lot longer in the book than it does in the movie there's a whole character that was omitted like after he goes up into the mountains and is away from all human sense and his his beard grows out he lives off of like lizards and things that he can catch and just eats whole kind of stuff he uh ends up coming down from the mountain and there's this whole sequence in there where he's found as this wild man and there's this scientist who's talking about this whole fluidal theory and that the higher up you are in the world the worse it is for you and blah 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 and it's it just gets kind of nuts after a while but it's a huge expansive section of that book too just the amount of time he was out in seclusion was massive and they cut that down to a couple minutes in the movie that's so crazy because seeing the movie when that happened when he went to the cave and it's like and then he stayed in the cave and then it was like three years later or whatever the hell it was and i was like wait what he's in a cave and and literally i like there are a few times in this movie that the movie just like crowbarred me out of the movie like suddenly i'm like wait a second wait 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 what is he eating how is he getting by what is going on he has this ridiculous beard. Yeah. Okay. Well, that I can sleep now. He ate lizards. I feel better. But it was just kind of like you know what? I, like I, I, th- these are the kinds of moments that it, it made me feel like the people who were adapting the book were a bit too reverential to the book. Because honestly, like in this story, what we're trying to what they're trying to say, like if they have a statement to say, which is that. Yes, you make art, but look at what art can do and the morals, blah, blah, blah. And, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a horrible serial killer, but look what he did is basically the point of the movie. I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole twist. That's the whole, that's what you hang your hat on. He did not need to spend five years in a cave, like in the movie. I mean, it's like, and I, I understand you, like, cause, for, you know, this is a huge bestseller. So I'm sure somebody, if you had changed a lot more, would have been upset. Um, and I'm sure they were cognizant of that, but it's like from just a narrative perspective and again, coming at it from someone who has not read the book, but just saw the movie, I was just like, I don't understand why he just hung out in a cave for five years. It's like, I, I still, it just made no goddamn sense to me. And I was like, okay, that, or, I'm just going to have to forget that this happened because I'm calling shenanigans on this right now. Yeah. I feel like the major takeaway from his, from his seclusion in the book was that over that time he didn't. That's where he didn't just decide that not only did he not need people, but he decided he was a god in comparison to them. 
See, that's they, interesting. I want more of that. Yeah, he went out to, in the movie? to the middle of nowhere to basically learn that he was a god. And that that's the weird thing for them to leave out, I think. Well, and also that he has no scent. That was one of the big things that he learns, too, is of all people, everybody has an odor except for him. And he would try everything. He's like you know, pulling hairs out of his crotch and sniffing his armpits and all this stuff. And he has absolutely no odor whatsoever. And that's when he kind of realizes, too, that he, yeah, he's apart from the entire world. And then after that, I mean, really, it, it makes me so sad to see Alan Rickman, and Alan Rickman is just so wonderful in this movie. He barely is on screen, but everything is wonderful. And when you see him reacting when he thinks that he has saved his daughter, and he walks in the room and sees that she's been shaved and had all of her hair and everything removed from her, her scent removed from her, that reaction, it's like, well, this is why you hired Alan Rickman, because he can give that reaction like nobody else can. There are very few actors that I could say, they, and now that he's deceased, you know, we have the full spectrum. It's like that you can do no wrong. I don't think that Alan Rickman had ever, could ever have done wrong. I mean, I had not, I have never seen him in a role where he was anything less than compelling. And, and he, like his casting in this movie, especially with some of the murkiness of some of the other characters, like, I mean, Ben Wishaw is a really great actor and I think he does a fine job, but there's just not much grand we to, to do here. He mostly has to react to things and then do stuff. It's like there's not there's not a lot of depth to his character, I think, necessarily. Um, but you get like, you know, Dustin Hoffman as Baldini uh, and Alan Rickman, uh, you know, and suddenly when Alan Rickman shows up, he's the, immediately the moral center of the movie. Like immediately you just want to see uh, the, the movie turn into the Alan Rickman story. And he is so much smarter than anybody else in this entire film. The city wants to call the bishop and excommunicate this murderer that's in their midst, and he's just like, what are you doing? He's obviously not going to respect that, and he has this whole plan of like, here's how you're going to catch him. You need to do this, and he's almost like like Will Graham or, or Gil Grissom you know, shows up in this movie. He's just like, no, this is – you know, and he's, he starts – he basically starts to profile the murderer. Nobody wants to listen to him and his profile. I guess that's why this made a pretty compelling episode of Criminal Minds. There was a Criminal Minds that was almost exactly the perfume story that was done a few years ago. Unless the victims all wore excessive amounts of perfume, it would take a hell of a nose to detect smell through a taxi window. Not necessarily. People with the olfactory disorder hyperosmia have an oversensitivity to smell. They typically pick up scents that other people can't. I don't think you'd be going after the perfume. It's already artificial. So they probably weren't wearing anything on their skin. Something about their natural scent compels him. Smells a powerful trigger for memory. You might be trying to bring back the memory of something you lost. Oh, that's so funny that you bring that up because I was thinking, like, I would watch a series about Alan Rickman, like, you know, profiling murderers in this period. I would be like, yeah, let's go to France, uh, profile some murderers. Like, be like Jessica Fletcher, except, like, go to different towns and, you know, somebody gets killed or, like, you're hunting a murderer or whatever. And it's just... Poor Alan. I, oh, I miss him. I miss Alan Rickman. Well, and they show the, all those damn Harry Potters all the time, and I'm just like, oh, Severus Snape, I love you. Did you see his his last role, not to get too off the subject, was uh, Eye in the Sky, Eye on the Sky. What was that, the Helen Mirren film? It was a really good little thriller. Alan Rickman is, you know, it's mostly an ensemble piece. Helen Mirren is a major character. Alan Rickman is a major character. Alan Rickman has a scene toward the end of the film, which is so good 
that it's like it's what a way for an actor to go out honestly it's so so good um it, you know and even if the film is maybe like a b plus or a b not quite an a or an a minus his performance and helen mirren's performance are like superlative and make the entire thing worth watching it's a really good little movie yeah, i feel like that's that's sort of indicative of his whole career though because he always elevated material like i probably never would have finished the the Robin Hood movie that he was in were it not oh, for the uh, fact that he anchored that movie as as, as technically the, the lower tier villain of the piece he got the most screen time and he was the one that made you watch it cancel the kitchen scraps for lepers and orphans no more merciful beheadings and call off Christmas he's so good I remember when that movie came out and I remember leaving me like that was a terrible movie but I really love Alan Rickman in everything. He's so good in that. Well, he was only a half step from Hans Gruber at that point in his career. I mean, he was still like, you know, Hans Gruber everywhere. He was, you know, but of course, you know, if you haven't seen, what was it? Truly Madly Deeply. That was the one where he's the ghost. Such a beautiful, I don't even know if you can get it anymore. It's one of those like Disney Miramax movies that I think has just never seen the light of DVD, but it's what a beautiful, magical movie and what a, wonderful performance by him and he's not a villain he's it's a beautiful romantic lovely who is it juliet stevenson was the lead i think i don't remember that's one i haven't thought about in ages but and i was i was a bit young at the time but i can't imagine that that collective feeling of everyone you know after that that double punch of die hard and robin hood and then realizing how warm and sweet and wonderful he was capable of being just as easily I was really hoping that he didn't have a sense of smell in this movie because there's a, the moment, you know, Brenwy comes in, he's, he eventually gets caught and he gets caught because of this dog that can still smell its mistress and the dog tracks down where, uh, the, the mistress's scent was coming from. So he gets caught. He ends up going to prison for a very brief time, is sentenced. He comes out and he has his creation with him, this this perfume that's been made out of these 13 different women um, that he has murdered and he has this smell and he comes out and people are just like he is the picture of innocence they just smell him and the smell goes through the entire crowd and everyone is just like he is innocent and then he puts on more and they're just like not only is he innocent he is an angel he is straight from heaven i was just like i wonder if he smells the way that Jesus smelled you know was that just the whole thing that jesus smelled really good and everybody's just like man this this is our guy that definitely feeds into his whole god image too like if it maybe that's what he was he was <laughs> cultivating he was trying to just give people the smell of god and we keep seeing rickman in the back uh and eventually after Grenwy does one more you know magic trick with this perfume and everyone starts to have sex with one another Rishi, the Rickman character, comes up to him and he's got his sword out and he is, it looks like he's going to murder him. And you see the way that Grenwy opens up his arms, like, I have nothing more, you know, go ahead and, and stab me, kill me. And I think he's kind of welcoming, welcoming it. And then the smell overcomes Rishi and Rickman is just crying and can you ever forgive me and all this horrible stuff. In the book, he actually adopts we and takes him back to his house and comforts him and keeps him company and, and treats him like a son for, I don't know how long, but that's, you know, and then eventually Grenwy 
leaves him and goes to Paris. But yeah, he just has one on everyone with this scent. The book does go way deeper into that, into the insanity of the final act, especially of uh, the way that they completely acquit him of everything and then turn it on Drouot uh, almost instantaneously. It's And then they never speak of it again. <laughs> Everyone feels that shame of that orgy and just will not ever speak of it. Well, I think they said that, that they also, when they, when they can, in the book, I think they said when they convicted the true murderer, that, that they, they acted like they never really happened. They kept it quiet because, you know, they, they'd all just felt ashamed that, you know, it had gone, that they'd pinned the innocent one first. <laughs> I mentioned before how it ends with him going into the city and going into Paris, going back to where he was born in the squalor and the dirt and just this movie is as dirty as hard to be a god but i think it might be even dirtier since it's in color and you can almost smell the streets of paris coming through your screen i mean it really is pretty ripe yeah the the filth is palpable they do one of my favorite things that i feel like a lot of period pieces tend to forget which is focusing on the hideous grimy teeth that everybody definitely had there was there was a lot of uh, production design and sound design grotesquerie in this. Uh, I, I remember, like even in the beginning, because I, again I rewatched it like yesterday. Um, the fish at the beginning, like just I remember like hearing it because I was listening to it on headphones and I had seen it for the first time, not on headphones, but listening to it on headphones and and it's on Amazon Prime, so anyone can watch this. I, I, I'm sure you're going to tell, but. The, the sound design of the fish be in, being splayed out on the cobblestones. It's like, what'd you do? You took like seven ripe tomatoes and like squashed them together. It's, it was the juiciest, most disgusting, like, or whatever. I don't, I, there was a lot of disgusting sounds in this movie. There was a lot of disgusting sounds. And I was talking before about, you know, how like grass was a real town. I, it, there are other little like, uh, just hints of truth to this story that give it enough credibility. You know, I mean, setting it in the late 1700s in Paris is one thing because I don't know, you guys, I'm not an expert on what was going on in Paris before the revolution. And then having things like, uh, you know, uh, there was a murderer who used fat from women and children to make soap. A little bit of Tyler before Tyler Durden. And then also there was a perfumer whose real name was Grenouille, who named his, renamed himself to Grenville, I think it was, and became famous because he was really good at advertising. So there are these little, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Little truths hidden in here that give this credibility to the story. And the other thing that we have mentioned before is that the ephemeral nature of scent that we might not ever know of him or know of his place in history. So I like that Susskind does that kind of builds us up where it could be true. This And it's so fantastical that, you know, it takes that, like you were saying that hard right turn where it's like, I really don't think this could be true, but uh, I don't know. I can't remember what year, like Water for Chocolate was, but it seemed like there was kind of a resurgence in the late, uh, late part of la- the last century of magical realism. And this kind of plays into that kind of stuff. It was the early nineties, I think. But yeah, it, it was very sensual. I mean, it, I mean, the whole movie was about sense and sensual things being art. I mean, in a way, I mean, it's, it's not very, it's not far from any of the movies that use food 
in that way. Chocolat afterwards, like debating, you know, if you liked it or not, um, it certainly has its fans and its detractors, but it did do that. Babette's Feast is another one. Um, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which is one of my favorite movies from Ang Lee. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. Uh, it's all about a chef. Uh, and the food in that movie. Tampopo? Oh, ta- I did not see Tampopo, but I heard it's amazing. Yeah, it's actually on my DVR because they just did a re- uh, restoration, right? That movie will make you so hungry. And I understand Big Night as well. Yes, they don't make sensual movies about dieting. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play an interview with one of the screenwriters of Perfume, Andrew Birkin, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at TwilightZone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B movie reel. Shoot it! Shoot it! (laughs) (laughs) That about describes it. Yeah. All right, everybody, stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones, the ones that air on Saturday night. Known throughout the ages as an instant classic. (laughs) We need a bigger gator. A limb cutting and blood squirting from (laughs) flying limbs. I called it in my notes. (laughs) What could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since they've been over two hundred of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. By this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. The future depends on it. Hey, fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, you know, find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards, in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future... Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. 
You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and, of course, SoundCloud. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you're listening to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? So how did perfume come about? Perfume came up. It, it had been around in, for a couple of, of, of three or four years, Eichinger, Bernd Eichinger, for whom I had written various things in the past, and he'd given me the money to make the cement garden. And oh, I'd done a couple of other things. Uh, I, when you were saying about that six-year period, I, yeah, I did a couple of rewrites uh, for a lot of money but no credit, in return for no credit. So he was coming at me with this um, Suskin book, which I knew that book. Uh, it's, I mean, I'd read it and wonderful. How do you make it as a movie? Uh, um, he sent me an outline that he'd written, that Eichinger had written, uh, quite a long a treatment as to how he would do it. He'd already had a script written for him, uh, had he at that point? I forget. There was a there was a, a woman called scriptwriter called. Um, she did Edward Scissorhands. Caroline Thompson. <laughs> I think she'd written it rather like Edward Scissorhands. I think she'd written it as a sort of fairy story, and he didn't want to do that. And then he sent me this outline of his, which I read, and um, I didn't think it worked at all because what he had done was taken the character of Riches, the the father of, of the of the girl. Well, the book, as you know, the whole thing is, first of all, the whole thing is in the head of, of, of uh, Granui, and yet it's told in the third person as if somebody has privileged access to his mind, which is a difficult genre, and, and it, well, not even a genre, it's a difficult angle to take on someone. So you're inside their head, and yet you don't know them. You're the narrator. Um, he had taken Riches and effectively turned Riches into the narrator, the father of the girl who only occupies three pages, I think, in the original book. He used Riches as, like, in his old age, after everyone's dead, including his daughter, how did this ever happen kind of thing. The first time I ever met him was blah, 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 ripple, ripple, and then we go into a kind of flashback. But it it's kind of just didn't work for me at all because it was like, how does he know all this stuff? How does he know what was going on inside Grenouille's head? Since he is an objective third-person character in the movie, how how can he now be a first-person subjective character narrating what Grenouille was thinking long before Grenouille ever met his daughter? It doesn't make sense. Unless somehow that he'd got Granui to confess everything in, I don't know, the night before he was hanged or something. Uh, I, I didn't think it worked and said so. And uh, then he went, uh, at that point, he wasn't saying, would I write it? He was just um, getting my reaction. And then uh, then he called. Uh, yeah, then I think he, maybe he'd got this uh, uh, Thompson uh, Caroline Thompson to write something. He didn't like that either. And would I do it? And then there was a, a huge hiccup in my life, which was that my son Anna was killed. He was at age 20 in a car crash in Italy, and uh, which naturally threw me for a loop. In the year 2001, this was. I always knew 2001 was going to be an extraordinary year, and it was in that I met my present wife then at the beginning, 
who at that point was married to a film producer slash he distributed the cement garden um called Hamish McAlpine and uh and I we met at dinner and uh, I fell madly in love with her across the dinner table despite being twice her age and uh and then later that year Anno with whom I'd gone off to India that summer and we'd been written stuff together and uh he he was um very amazing uh poet and songwriter in his own right he was killed with his band in Italy in a horrible car crash that was nothing to do with them they effectively piled up into somebody else's accident in the thick fog at two o'clock in the morning on the motorway on the on the autostrada in Milano that was all not what you're expecting and but about six months, yeah, and I wanted to take a year, of, well, six months off to, to put all his poetry together and he wrote over like over a thousand and I made a book out of them and published the book and then with the money we started a chapter, we being his mother, my ex-partner with whom I've always stayed very friendly, starting a charity in Kenya for slum kids to try and give them a little bit of the chance that Anno had to express himself. So they do, we do this charity. It's been going now for about 12 years, doing painting and uh, the arts and ballet and uh, filmmaking and photography and blah, 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 just to give kids the opportunity to d- discover uh, the creative uh, gene that they uh, that everybody carries, really. It's just a few get the opportunity to try and express it. Uh, so I got a call from Ikea. Oh, he said if I wanted to make a film about Anna, because I've got, you know, obviously hundreds of thousands of hours of videotape with him, which I did think about, but I didn't want to, because he had or has two other, two brothers. I didn't, I didn't, I felt that, um, to make a film about their dead brother would somehow make them feel the less, as it were, because he was very extraordinary uh, in a way that they are not but equally loved, if you know what I mean. But I came off offered that and then said, would I think about doing perfume? Um, kind of with him, well, he implied it was with him. And then I went out to see him in Berlin and... We talked about it, and he said, no, he wanted me to write it. Um, he was now doing something called Downfall about the last days of Hitler, which naturally, that was one of those things. Hitler and Napoleon were always the two subjects that we fell to discussion whenever we were meant to be talking about something else. And uh, I could remind him of Carol Reed's caution about uh, be careful that we don't feel sorry for them for losing the war. I passed on to Ike and he said would I go out to uh, Munich and write it out there so we were both living in the same house he was writing Downfall I was writing Perfume and then we went out to dinner in the evening and exchanged notes and went along like that and then when I finished it uh, and I went for pretty much the finish of what the movie is uh, I said well I think we should just do it straight Um, make the girl into a bigger character and the far richest and the girl uh, than she is in the book. He was having big problems. He, he took it to Warner Brothers 
because he had a relationship with Warners and in particular whoever it was who was running Warners or the, the European side of Warners at that point. And the guy said, gee, you know, gee, Bernie, you know, I've got a 14 year old daughter. Why would I want to make this movie and have my 14 year old daughter go see it? <laughs> he was saying, you know, maybe we should soften it down a bit. And I said, you can't soften it down because the, the whole point about Gunui is that he's, uh, well, he's a psychopath. I mean, he has no morals. Um, I said, my biggest problem is with the, the plot that because I, of course, then went and researched perfume, and we all went off to grass, actually. Well, I went off and spent a couple of weeks researching um, perfumes and essences, and that's something that stayed with me forever after. And, of course, what you find out fairly quickly is that the whole idea of of robbing a, a sort of pubescent girl of her perfume is nonsense. It makes no sense whatsoever. And... Even if it did make sense, even if there was a perfume there to rob, the last thing you want to do is kill her because she, her body goes cold and then the perfume would no longer be possible to, um, using enfleurage, you wouldn't be able to capture it. Because that's the process he uses, covering her in fat, which is the same way that you, you, they used to capture the perfume from roses and jasmine and, uh, most blossom flowers is that very, very labor intensive. You have thousands of girls with these sheets of glass covered in usually pig fat. And then you put um, the blossoms and it works. I mean, I've tried it. In fact, you can do it at home. Just go down to the supermarket and buy some animal fat, some lard, and uh, take any strong smelling flour. And if you place it on the fat and then the next day get rid of that flour and put a fresh flour on and then a day later, get rid of that flour and put another one. So you do this for about three weeks. That the the oil from the flour starts is absorbed by the animal fat, and it's to do with it's a bit like the sodium potassium pump in the brain. It's to do with a, a um, an electrical uh, difference in voltage between the two, which is kind of weird and, and doesn't come into the story, needless to say, at all. Yeah. But the idea Granui then transfers that same process onto the girls. In other words, he kills them, then smears them with fat, then wraps bandages around the fat, and then waits, and then scrapes off the fat. And the fat has, we are asked to believe, captured the uh, unique essence of that girl. So although it sounds like a good idea, in actual fact, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> it doesn't work on a couple of counts, as I say. It wouldn't. It doesn't work anyway. There's nothing special about puberty in terms of um, scent, a woman's scent. And if we're talking about pheromones, pheromones don't smell. That's the point of them. The brain registers them, but they have no scent of their own. And the moment you kill a person or animal or whatever, it would, it would almost immediately stop giving off that perfume which would then anyway start to become rotten over time. But uh, it would no longer be, the pheromones are no longer given off. So there's a basic flaw to Patrick Susskind's original novel. But, you know, we, we don't mind any of that because it's a movie. Uh, more the concern of Warner Brothers was, you know, is this a, a, a film that we want to be seen to be making? And where's the moral in it? And well, the answer is there is no moral. It's a totally amoral piece. 
Uh, that's half the fun of it. And you can enjoy it because it's a movie and you know it's not real, if you see what I mean. But it was a problem. I mean, it was, how do you, how are we going to make, um, Iking at Ben had this thing of, we've got to make Grenouille um, likable. The audience got to love him. I said, they're never going to love him. How are they going to love him? <laughs> they might be fascinated by him, but they're not going to love him because there's nothing lovable about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, we've got to make his childhood. We've got to feel so sorry for him as a child. I said, well, the reality is that as a child, you'd have one actor, and then the adult is going to be a different actor, and audiences don't transfer their affection from the child to the adult when you've switched actors. That's been proven many times. So that whatever um, stock you've built up, uh, emo em emotional, empathetic stock you've built up, for the child does not transfer to the adult. No matter what sort of childhood he's, ha he's had, you're still not going to, uh, you might uh, sympathize with him or you might have even not forgive him, but, uh, uh, mitigating circumstances, shall we say, but that, that's not going to make him sympathetic. I think what we have to do is find him fascinating against our better judgment almost. And I think if you try, I said, the, it seems to me the big danger with this piece is that if you try and make a movie that's going to work for middle America, you're going to lose it completely for those who love the book. I know we're not making a movie for, for the people who love the book argument, but nevertheless, it has quite a reputation. You're going to lose your German audience, where it was a huge bestseller. Uh and is that something you really want to do? And, and there's no guarantee that you're ever going to get Middle America unless you make it into a movie where the main character is the guy who's out there trying to catch him because that's the, for that's the formula. So he becomes the bad guy. I mean, to take Hannibal Lecter, sure, you can find Hannibal kind of uh, attractive, you can find him fascinating, you can find him whatever you want, but he's not the main character. It's um, whatever she was, Starling. And there are many, many... The only person who's ever really pulled it off was, um, as we know, was Shakespeare, with, with Richard III. And even then, you don't really sympathize with him. It's more that you're fascinated to be inside the mind of this, uh, of this villainous king. It was the problem, I think, I told... We talked about ages ago about the final conflict and making Damien the main character. In a sense, you can't because, well, Fox felt you couldn't because you can't make him too attractive if he's the devil. Therefore, you've got to come up with some other character who's going to be the main character, um, which was no easy task. In fact, it was an impossible task. That what I find impossible anyway. So the same with Perfume, to have created, let's say, Riches, uh, as Iking had done initially by... Um, uh, in his treatment, making him, but instead of make, making him in his old age, you could perhaps make a story where he tries to kill him early on in the story, and then, I mean, the Grenouille tries to kill the daughter, but somehow Richie surprises him and uh, chases him off, and then we, we, we're with Richie's um, in the second act because now Grenouille's gone on to murder other girls. And he's going to come back for Richard's goal in the third act. You could do something like that, but I, I, I'm not. I wasn't suggesting it. I said I think that that would um, 
uh, I think that you would be stoned to death in Germany. <laughs> and I don't think it would really make a better movie. I think it would make it just a much more ordinary movie. Yeah, so he agreed and said, well, you know, let, uh, then do your worst, as it were. And so I wrote the script. But he, there were, there were quite a few things that he wouldn't let me do. I would have made it a, a dirtier on the whole. Not dirtier, I'd have made it grubbier. Um, I felt it was all a bit, too, a bit too clean at times. But uh, I did. I mean, it, it, it was not bad at all. I, I liked it. Uh, I liked the music. I liked uh, a lot of it. I think Tom Tickford did a very good job. My only slight grievance was, well, it wasn't really a grievance. It was my fault. I, when I finished it, I said to Iking, really, this is your, yours as much as mine. I think you should put your name on it with mine. And he said, no, 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 you wrote it. And, uh, and I said, well, yeah, but um, uh, it, it's not the script I would have written on my own. And um, I'm, I'd be very happy if your name was on it too. I said, as long as it doesn't, it costs me financially. I, in other words, as long, as long as I don't lose my solo credit bonus. And he said, no, no, don't worry about that. So he put his name on it. So when then Tom came in involved, he only came, he, he made a, an agreement with Eichinger, which I understand, but he said, if there's going to be any more further rewriting, I want to be on, in on it and I want to be part of the writing team. So in other words, I want my name on it as a writer as well. If there's to be further writing, if there's to be any further stuff, and I think we ought to do this, that, and the other. So I came to me and said, what did I think? And I said, well, I don't care that much. I mean, as long as, again, as long as I don't get penalized, you know, under the WG, Writers Guild of America, WGA, uh, strictly speaking, director's not allowed to do that. But I can see that if he wants to be part of any further rewrites, then it's probably fair that he should have a credit uh, or be involved at any rate and the thing is that Tom had always either written or co-written I think he'd always written his previous films himself as well as doing the music or at least co-doing the music and he's one of those directors that likes to be involved in every aspect which which I completely sympathize with on that basis we Proceeded. I went up to St. Petersburg where they were shooting the downfall by then, the last days of Adolf in the bunker. And, uh, we all met and got on very well. And then we went to grass and we did. And then Tom wanted to do a lot of these rewrites of, he felt we needed more of riches and the girl being, um, a product of the age of reason of, you know, reading Voltaire and da 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 da, -da and making into a much bigger character than she was in my draft. I felt there was something wrong, but uh, I went along with it. I mean, we all sat around and talked about it a lot. And then I tended to be the one sitting there at the laptop, and I'd have Tom on my left and Bernie on my right. And <laughs> occasionally I'd be saying, well, come on, make up your mind. What do you want? I'm just the scribe here. And they said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I think you're both wrong. But, uh, you know, uh, what can I say? And the thing, why I thought it was wrong is I said, the more we sympathize and identify and empathize with the girl, with this law girl, the more we're going to hate Renui for murdering her. Whereas at least if she's, you know, a figurehead, a beautiful girl, but we don't really know much about her, then we still stay with Renui. Otherwise, I feel we're going to be torn and we're back into this question of who is the main character well anyway the upshot was we did a lot of rewrites and 
I think all of almost all of it was stripped out in the end, <laughs> and the final shooting script was the one I wrote in the first place in the as a first draft, which very often happens. It's partly pragmatically you need a script that's not a lot more than 90 pages or 100 pages and we were already expanding up to like 150 pages it systematically cut the stuff away and it came back to what one had written in the first place and then when it did come to the credit I had the writers guild on the phone to me saying I was in Thailand by then on holiday but they would say and I, I remember because I was taking the phone calls like um with sea water up to my nipples because you could only wade out to the island we were staying on at low tide and I'd be the tide would be coming in and I'm trying to talk to these people in California and they're saying you know was what did Tom Tickford contribute to the final script and what did this that and the other and I, I felt terribly torn I didn't know what to say I just said well he was part of the writing team and so he said so you did write it as a team and I thought well no, I didn't write the first draft as a team, but um, oh, what the hell? Yeah, we yeah we were a team. A little bit is rather similar to actually um, the, the uh, name of the rose, but that was different in that there were two scripts that had already been written, which I'd read. Whereas on this, there was no, there was there was this Caroline Thompson script, but I'd never read that and. This was people coming in. Well, in the case of Eichinger, as I say, it was my fault because I invited him on. If 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 he hadn't had his name on it, then then I don't think Tom would have been able to ask to put his on. But there are no. I think uh, Tom did a, a really fine job with the movie. It is one. Well, it's one of my favorites. I love introducing new people to that film as well. Hoffman is. Uh, it kind of, you wonder, at this. I think he dubbed him something like 14 times, and each time, no, I'm exaggerating, I think four or five, he had Hoffman dub himself, and each time he had a different accent. Sometimes he sounded more Chinese than him, because, of course, uh, Baldini is meant to be Italian, but he didn't want to do a kind of opera buffalo accent, which is understandable, but I think he got maybe a little too subtle at times. I thought he was rather good, Hoffman, I, I enjoyed him. On balance, I was very happy with the upshot. It was just a pity that it didn't get a better release in America because it was very odd. Spielberg uh, saw it. He's come in the cutting room. He really liked it a lot and wanted DreamWorks to distribute it, which would have been a rather odd film for them to do. Uh, but as it so happened, DreamWorks had just signed some distribution deal with Paramount the Paramount distribution guys were suddenly handed perfume a month before it was meant to come out at Christmas. And it's like, what are we meant to do with this? <laughs> they had no idea what to do with it, how to distribute it. And so it was one of those classic, I mean, of course, it shouldn't have been distributed by a, one of the big five or six. It should have gone with a small distributor and, and been allowed to pick up on word of mouth, it's a great mistake putting it out or trying to put it out big time. But it did very well elsewhere. It made a, uh, it made its money back no end in, in places like Japan and pretty much the rest of the world. America was just about the only country that where it didn't score. Not so much because people didn't go to see it; it's because it wasn't there to be seen. Yeah, it seems like it was custom made for the American art house and just 
I didn't even know about it until it ended up on video. Yeah, sure. I, I, I don't think anybody knew. It, it literally came out in about three theaters, I think, over Christmas, which was the wrong time to put it out anyway. And there was no advertising or anything. I don't think there was any promotion. It was literally, and Spielberg was very apologetic about it to, to Tikva and Ikea because it just got screwed up. He, it was a case of his enthusiasm, but the left hand not really knowing what the right hand was up to, given that DreamWorks were just about to make this deal with Paramount. So there we are. back and we were talking about perfume. I should say before we continue that there is a lot more to that interview with Andrew Birkin, and I will be posting that as a bonus episode. So keep your eyes peeled on the RSS feed for the projection booth. I tried to watch a movie that was a meta commentary about the making of this movie that was made before the movie, uh, a film called Rossini. Uh, unfortunately, it, it's 2019. Why is it so hard to find subtitles for movies that were made in the 1990s? It's really kind of sucky. And I, I had such a hard time finding this film itself. I don't even know if the DVD is still in print, but Helmut Dietl's Rossini from 7, it was co-written by Dietl and Patrick Suskind, and Suskind is kind of a character in it, or there's a uh, a character that's like him, and then there's a character that is based on one of the other screens for Perfume, who was trying to get Perfume turned into a movie, and the movie Rossini is about a writer who is having his book adapted, and this guy who's pretty uh, uh, not good at his job, so incompetent. But I wish I could have watched it, because I just can't. I don't speak German, so I apologize about that. Well, obviously, this 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 podcast is completely invalid, and everyone should turn it off immediately because we haven't. You know, you don't speak. Get, get what do you what are you doing this podcast for? You should be off learning German. What do you, what do you think this is? I wish I could say I'm sorry in German right now, just to put a button on that joke. I only know Ich liebe dich, mein Schatz, and that is not I'm sorry. Yeah, I was gonna try to watch it too, and same hit the same wall. So, oh well. Or there's a Russian narrated version. I started watching that by accident. I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> you mean you don't know Russian? Mike, <laughs> what is happening here? Do you know how large that country is, Mike? You have no excuse at this point. We're in a global society, man. They're taking over. You might as well. I <laughs> know. <laughs> That's true. But I did watch the Parfum miniseries, which was loosely based on Suskin's book. And loose? Loose is one way to put it. Yeah, yeah, it's, like, it's inspired like, by the concept. But it's inspired I, by the word in the title. That's about <laughs> it. It's like there's not there's. I mean, come on, let's be real. It's like it's it's about sense and some creepy stuff. It's really not. And and they they watch it at times during the thing, right? 
unacknowledged, which is really weird. Like it'll just be on our main detective's TV screen in her office or in the bullpen. And there's no mention of what it is that she's watching. And it's like, Oh, here's the dog from perfume. Here's this other scene from perfume. It's like, Oh, okay. But yeah, she never says like, Oh yeah, there was a movie made of this though. They talk about the book and they like, will read from the book and the book influenced these kids Man, I I mean, right now, I watched the, that miniseries last week, and if you ask me point blank who the murderer was, I would have to stop and think for a long time before I could remember who the murderer was in that. I've only uh, watched the, the first two episodes so far, and it was, like, I, I don't know how I'm feeling about it yet. Oh, I do. I'll help you out. I, I, yeah, <laughs> it's like, I, I have definite opinions on how I feel about this German miniseries. Yeah, I, it was interesting to me because hearing Andrew Birkin talk about, you know, how they were trying to focus the movie and one of the ideas was like, well, you can't have Grenouille as a main character. He's, you know, horrible and irredeemable. They said if they were going to try to focus it for a more international audience, you know, what you normally would do is turn it into a procedural. And that's exactly what the show does. There's nothing wrong with the procedural. Like just 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 putting it out there. I mean, uh, I'll bring up it's like a Western. It's a trope. There are definite, like, you know, presupposite, like, like, like things that you expect of it just because it is whatever it is. But you even, you, all you need to do, we'll go back to Thomas Harris. We'll look at the TV series Hannibal, which, which basically for the first, I want to say one and a half seasons was more or less a procedural sort of in a kind of perverse way. And then it became something completely unique and different. Uh, it, it evolved into it, but you know, uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with the procedural that, but that show, Oh boy. I don't know. I, you know, I'm sure some, first of all, it looks gorgeous. In fact, when, after the first episode, I was watching with my boyfriend, I was just like, I have to know how they shot this. And, and, and there, there are articles on the cinematography. I mean, they shot for that movie, uh, that show for a lot of months. I forget. I want to say it was like, I read it was 10 months or something crazy. Like, like literally they just shot these six episodes over 10 months. So they had money, uh, and I hope I'm not wrong about that. I, that was from my memory, but it's like they had obviously had money. They had a big crew. They had uh, a lot of locations, a lot of characters, a lot of ideas, a lot of visual everything. It looks like they 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 watched every David Fincher movie twelve times, and they wanted to do something creepy and unsettling and whatever. And I did not finish it yet. I, I do not know if I'm going to because I think my issues with it are narrative and, and in the writing, it's like all the actors, I just, that, that main female character, the, the detective, I'm like, I like her as an actor, but I, I can't for the life of me figure out what the hell she's doing or why. And I don't think that's her fault. I think that there's, I don't know. It's, it's a very, very, you can, I just, I don't know. I, I get the sense that these filmmakers are just very, very proud of themselves for doing cool shots and like, Oh look, dead kids flashbacks with like artificial film grain on them like did that bug anybody else because that was really annoying it was it just felt so film school god that was awful for me to say i really feel bad about saying that but it's really true yeah they put their imdb page against my imdb page i should shut the hell up so you know whatever um they're the ones they're the ones you know getting paid by netflix so i'm not gonna but at any rate uh yeah I, I don't it's a very it's a very very light connection with the book or this film and I don't think Tom Twiker is particularly threatened either cuz god knows if he were he should get into therapy well the thing about the movie that we didn't discuss discuss that fascinates me is that apparently it was 
the most expensive German movie ever produced at the time, too. Which, that's... Like, I mean, I can see where it went, because it takes a lot to pay 750 people to writhe around naked. <laughs> well, but, you know, I mean... The, but, I, but I, I such don't a, know. Yeah, a weird sorry. story. It's, it, it's surprising that they were able to put that kind of money behind it. Well, it was a huge, huge, huge bestseller. I mean, it's like, it sold, I forget how many copies, but it was millions and millions of copies. And it was, I think, one of the biggest German fiction books ever or something. Uh, yeah, especially of, of the, the 20th century. But it's, narratively, it's, it's, I mean, as you can kind of attest to, because it didn't really click for you, it's, it's a really hard sell for a film audience, I think. Oh, yeah. So, so them getting that kind of money for it is insane. And yeah, it seems like they put a fair amount into this, this miniseries as well. You mentioned the, all the extras getting naked in perfume. There were a couple of shots where I was just like, am I looking at real people or are these computer generated? There were a couple of times where, like, I think at the beginning when he looks out and he sees people in the square when they're building the cross where they're going to put him up there and break every joint in his body. I was like, man, those people look fake. But then later on, when he's in the square for real, I was like, okay, now all of these people look like they're actually there. So I don't know. There were some very subtle special effects in perfume that I thought worked really well. And then there were some more overt ones. I also think, think looked really good. Like the baby, I thought looked pretty darn good. That baby looked great. You know, one of the, the one at the top of the movie. Yeah. That was, that was a creepy, creepy baby. That was really good. That was like, you know, that train spotting should be ashamed of itself. In the pantheon of fake baby movies, this is this is probably the top. Yeah, sniper, bottom of the list. What else do we round that list out with? There's the shoot 'em up, there's the last half of hard boiled. What else is there? Oh yeah. Oh my god, I haven't thought about hard boiled in forever. Now I want to see it again. I have the I have the Criterion DV the DVD, the long, long, long out of print DVD. I, I should watch it. Yeah, it's probably worth a couple hundred bucks, I think, at this point. Uh, but God, that's a good movie. I still sing that Saliva Sammy song. Well, talk about like movies that, you know, you can't get anymore. I mean, and this is a larger conversation. It has nothing to do with perfume, but it's like, that's a conversation worth having. Like, you know, where are the movies from not just the nineties, but the eighties and the seventies and not to mention before that, like the ones that are not necessarily studio movies or were financed by some compendium of investors that just kind of fade away. They're just like unavailable. Um, there are tons of them. I mean, me and select other people had to spend like 10 years yelling at random people on the internet to get a Blu-ray of Never Too Young to Die, so it can happen. I, I remember Shout Factory one day put out a thing of like where they just asked, hey, what are some movies you want to see us release? And I just started going, you ever heard of Never Too Young to Die? And they said, no. So I took a little bit of responsibility for that one. Oh, you're amazing. No, Shout Factory, they're run by such great people, and uh, they just announced... I don't know if this even makes sense because I don't know when this podcast is going up, but they literally just announced a Blu-ray of Can't Stop the Music. And I, I literally just announced it like, what, yesterday or the day before? And I cannot tell you, this is me being the gay person again, how excited I am about a Blu-ray of one of the worst movies of the 80s, but one of the most enjoyably worst movies of the 80s. It's so, it's so good. And it's so riddled with cocaine. Like the whole movie... Steve Guten, I want a supercut of Steve Gutenberg's performance in Can't Stop the Music. Everyone who tuned in listening, wanting to listen to Perfume is really annoyed at me right now, but you know, I have to talk about Steve Gutenberg on cocaine and Can't Stop the Music because it's, you cannot believe what you're seeing. Every line he says is screamed at the top of his lungs. It's amazing. 
it's an amazing it's it's an amazing film and it's directed by nancy walker better known as the bounty lady from the television commercials it's amazing or rhoda's mom yes or rhoda's mom yes yeah or or murder by death the maid who has no lines which I just saw again, like a couple of weeks ago, and God, that movie holds up. Except, you know, Peter Sellers is doing yellow face, so it's not terribly politically correct anymore. All these movies from my childhood, you can't, you can't get behind it anymore. You're like, oh yeah, can't really get behind Peter Sellers and you know the the Asian stereotype and the gongs and yeah, it's not good. Back to perfume. I talked about Nirvana at the top of the show, and I didn't realize until I was doing a little bit more research just how many, you know, you, you said that it was such a huge hit in Germany and around the world. So many musicians have been inspired by it and, and other artists. I mean, there's a rock opera that was based on perfume as well. There have been countless, uh, songs that were about, it. of course, Rammstein had to write one, but, um, you know, even like Pam Disco and stuff had songs that were based on perfume. So yeah, it's made a, a big impact and kind of continues to carry on. So I would have been happier if the Parfum miniseries had taken a little bit different of a turn, but I, it's not going to take away from Suskin's book. It's not going to take away from Tickverse movie or from any of these other things that were based loosely on perfume. So yeah, uh, at the very least, it's not trying to be a better adaptation than what we got. It's trying to be its own thing. A lame rehash. Well, yeah, I mean, anything like, listen, if they're going to, if they're just going to go out on a limb, then God bless, you know, it's like, do that. It's, you know, any, anytime an artist wants to like be inspired by something and just go out on a limb, that's always so much better than just some kind of lazy limb rehash. But that said, I think this film, I mean, just seeing it, the 2006 film, this could be a great miniseries. You like, if, if, if it was done right, if you like, you got really good people behind it and, and you figured out how not to do it with VO, maybe I, because the VO, I understand why it's there, but I think it's inherently problematic uh, in this particular uh, – not always. I mean certainly you can – countless movies do VO well. You know, Sunset Boulevard, you know, like tons, tons of movies. Um, this movie, the VO felt like we don't know how to do this, so here's some VO. We don't know how to express what's going on because it's all internal and it all has to do with scent and it all has to do with like how he's feeling and he's not going to say that. So here. Here's John Hurt. Very little dialogue, like considerably less than the movie, especially from Grinwee. Like he doesn't speak much in the movie, but in the book, it's it's almost non-existent. They're all come from him. Right. It's 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 strange in that the way the book tells the story is it's it's a third person narration, but it's a narrator who who knows the entire inner workings of what Grinwee's thinking. So it's almost like he's thinking in the third person about himself because that's the only way that would make sense. But yeah, it's it's that was the hardest thing I think for them to translate, and not for every, not for everyone does it work. Obviously, I feel like apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> no, <I'm> no, sorry. <laughs> no. It's it's it, and trust me because this is a movie I've I've shown multiple people to varying degrees of success. I showed my ex wife and she at the end of the movie she just and we'd watch the weirdest weirdest shit and at the end of it she was like what the hell was that and i had uh somebody i'm dating currently watch it yesterday somebody who has seen more weird stuff than normal stuff and still i was countered with what what the hell was that (laughs) so so it does it does not always play and i'm fully aware of that 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, I did read that it got very polarized reviews. I don't think we've talked about the the reaction, the critical reaction, but it was very kind of all over the map. You know, there were people who very much liked it and there were people who very much didn't. Yeah, I, I remember that like the the big one on the box is a big four star uh, from Roger Ebert in his later years. So it had some appreciation, but it it was not explicit. Yeah, and I don't think that this movie is without flaw either. Even rewatching it yesterday, I was like, this movie gets really long towards the end. I was like, I think we cut out a little bit towards the beginning or a little bit towards the end and just kind of taking the runtime down a little bit. But I still enjoy it. I, it. It's still something that I'll probably go back to every few years. It's hard for me to to look at it realistically only because I just think it's so weird and fascinating that it exists so I, it's hard for me to not appreciate it, even though I can recognize that, that there are some really strange, particularly disjointed moments in, the, I mean, that, that whole middle section, it, it feels like it jumps. And it does. It jumps a whole section of the book that I now recognize. I, re- I really feel if it is remade, and certainly, I mean, it's probably inevitable that it will be, I would like to see it take more risks. I would like to see it get a little more out there and a little more crazy. And maybe not and, – and I understand the impulse to kind of hold the audience's hand with voiceover. If, if this movie is remade, the, the one thing I would ask and the one thing I would hope is that it does not play it safe because this is a story that's very simple at heart. It's, it's really kind of about an artist who's amoral or immoral or a psychopath and he kills all these people and people want him to stop killing people and want to hunt him down. They finally do and yet that – is right on the uh, the eve of his greatest discovery, which fundamentally changes human cognition or sense or whatever, which is – I mean that's a story. So if you're going to do that and you're going to be like that into art and sensuality and everything, then the film should be that into art and sensuality. The film should be that crazy and risk-takey and, and stuff. And I feel like the, the one main criticism I have of this movie – and I didn't hate the movie. I just I just didn't love the movie – I feel like it really should have taken way more risks and be way more out there in order to tell this story. And I understand why it wasn't. It was a very expensive movie. There were a lot of people who were like really wanting it to be a big four quadrant hit all over the place. But I think in, in its zeal to try and kind of like, you know, make it palatable for like, you know, the, the 40 year old suburban mom in Topeka, they could have gone further and they could have been crazier and they could have been, uh, grosser or scarier or whatever. I just felt the punches were pulled. All right. On that note, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Everyone's talking. Hello. Oh, stop it. About me and him. Speak up. Speak up. It really gets inside men's heads. <laughs> you say that this voice that you think you're hearing is coming to you from your genital region? Well, he even speaks French. No. Yeah. It shows what's on their minds. How you think? Janet fakes orgasms? Pardon me? What? That's real nice of you to share with us, Bert. It's about communication. Hi, honey. So glad you called. I've heard that, Buster. It's about reaching out. Everyone needs a little pat on the ass now and then. You really see what men see in women. It's not sick. It's not sick. It's so honest. I love you, body and soul. Don't you look special? I'm under an incredible amount of pressure here. 
I hope you keep it up. Oh, it shows how sensitive men really are. When push comes to shove, I pump them and I dump them. Well, they're letting me take you for a ride. Bam, bam! It's touching. It's moving. He really opens up. Griffin Dunn, Carrie Lowell, me and him, the comedy that hits below the belt. I certainly will look at my boyfriend differently now. Me and him, now available on video cassette. Oh, all my friends have to see this. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at the talking genital, me and him. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Josh and David. David, the last time we talked, you were just announcing your documentary on Exorcist 2. How is that going, sir? It is going. Um, we are actually, as I am speaking now, about to interview one of the uh, – we already have interviews with several of the biggest people, and we are about to have our interview with the last of the big cast members who are alive – a very big cast member in it, and I'm very, very excited. That happens in a couple weeks. The film is coming together. We're going to do a Kickstarter in the spring. Uh, we were going to do one a couple months ago, but you know, we we decided to push it. Um, but yeah, it's still coming along. Hereticsmovie.com. And Josh, how about you? What's new in your world, sir? I have been sort of resetting myself lately. I spent the whole last year kind of getting back on my feet, and uh, just as a person, where I sort of fell out of the whole internet stuff that I'm. I, I was used to doing for so long. So I, I'm sort of just jumping back in, in feet first. I don't really have anything to plug. Just just that uh, I'm a, a different, happier person who has uh, figured themselves out a lot better than they did last time. Dude, that's a good place to be. That's it, a, it's such I a good place to be. I congratulate you. I found that's all great. the freaks in town, and I figured out which one of them I was like. <laughs> and that's the best <laughs> thing you can do. So I've just kind of been letting them carry me around for a while and uh, and, and trying to filter my normal stuff back into that. And it's uh, it's working splendidly. But uh, other than that, I mean, I don't I don't even have any social media to plug. I barely update the stuff anymore. But if you do, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll be tagged in the post for this. If anybody wants to to find me on there, I have weird, stupid things to say. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
eine schmale Brücke. Die Ufer sind vernunft und trieb. Ich steig dir nach, das Sonnenlicht in den Geist wird ein blindes Kind, das vorwärts kriegt, weil es seine Mutter riecht.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.